service, and if you missed it, uh, you can watch it again online, and thebibleproject.com has Advent series. We're focusing on peace. And in the video that opened our service, we highlighted how the word peace in the Bible is a little bit different than the, word, the way we use it in our English vocabulary today. So oftentimes when we talk about peace, um, just in our casual conversations, we mean like the absence of conflict. So I had, I, how was your day? Oh, it was peaceful. What do you mean by that? Well, I didn't have any fights, any disagreements with anyone, right? Like it was a peaceful day. Well, that's not really the biblical understanding. The biblical understanding is richer and deeper than that. And so in the video, they explained, like, in the Hebrew language, it's the word shalom, and in the Greek language, it's the word erne. And so they have richer and deeper meanings. And they highlighted in the video how it's not just absence of conflict, but it's actually bringing this resolution and this restoration and peace that, uh, and peace that comes after conflict. So you say, like, okay, at the finish of World War II, then they signed the peace treaty, World War II is over, and peace has come. Well, not in the biblical understanding of peace. That's not peace, the day after World War II ended. For the biblical understanding of peace, that would be whenever civilization is restored, buildings are restored, relationships are restored. That would be peace. So with that in mind, we, we really need to wrap our heads around this biblical concept of peace as we read the Bible this morning and we read the word peace on the pages of Scripture so to get us in an exercise, let's just imagine some of your stereotypical holiday gatherings. Let's look at what biblical peace might look like. So I don't know about you, but for me, um, holiday gatherings have a puzzle. My side of the family often has a puzzle out on the table. Now, I understand that is for some people the opposite of peace, to have, like, where are we going to eat? When's this thing going to finish? What about the pieces on the floor? It's like the opposite of peace. But some of us are like, no, we need to finish. We need that puzzle to be at peace because the biblical concept of peace as applied to that puzzle is that puzzle is not at peace in its box in the closet. That puzzle is only at peace once its pieces have all come together and you see that beautiful winter scene. And so we need to get that puzzle at peace. That's the biblical idea of peace. All those complex pieces have come together to make something beautiful and there you have peace. Um, stereotypical Christmas gatherings. You've got the holiday meal. You invited over family and friends. are gathering on the table. You prepared food. You got everything just right. The house is beautiful. They come in. It's fellowship. It's laughter. It's joy. Then they leave, and you sit down in your recliner, and you put your feet up, and you say, oh, I'm at peace. Now, some of you can do that, but others of you are not at peace until that house is put back together, right? Till the dishes are washed and things are put away and the house is back in order, then peace comes and that's actually the biblical understanding of peace. When the house has been restored, then we can have peace. So there you go if you're that type of person. One last one, the stereotypical Christmas gatherings, right? They, all the family converges onto the house for one day. You've got the warring siblings, the uncle and the cousin that don't get along together, and you say, okay, for a four-hour window, we're going to avoid politics and religion and pandemic and voting and parenting, and we're going to make sure they don't get in the same room together, and we're going to make sure that we just uh, pretend as if everyone loves one another. We're going to forget about those other things, and just for four hours, we're going to have peace. Four hours passed, everyone goes home, there was no conflict, no arguments, and you say, wow, what a peaceful gathering that was today. Maybe that suits the English language, but the point is, that's not biblical understanding of peace. That was just the avoidance of conflict. Biblical peace would be, we listen to one another, we understand one another, 
we forgive one another, and we are restored to one another. And so that is the biblical understanding of peace. And so when we read in Scripture here in these coming moments about the peace that Jesus came to bring, it is that type of peace that we are waiting for to break into our lives. And so the outline for the morning, we have it for the screens, is we're going to see that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We're going to read a promise of peace. We're going to look at the gift of peace and then a vision of peace. So as we work our way through it this morning, uh, we start with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this beautiful prophecy that I've already read for you at the beginning of the service, but we'll reread it at this time. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, This prophecy comes about 700 years before Jesus is born. It's loaded with rich meaning. You maybe have heard Christmas sermons on it already. You can preach. If you are discouraged or confused, Jesus is your wonderful counselor. If you are tired and weak, Jesus is your strength and your might. If you are feeling disappointed or let down by someone, he is your everlasting father. But for this morning, what we're looking at is if you have anxiety, if you are in conflict, If your soul is not at rest, if it is broken or disjointed, Jesus is your Prince of Peace. Peace is a theme of the Christmas season. Peace is the words that we sung in our songs already this morning. If you were paying attention to the lyrics you were singing, you already sang, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We sang, Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. It's in songs, if you pay attention to them, that we hear throughout this season. Silent night, sleep in heavenly peace. Do you hear what I hear? The lyric is, said the king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say. Pray for peace, people everywhere. And then I heard the bells on Christmas Day. The author there says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So peace is a theme of the Christmas season. It's all around us in the songs and the cards and the things that we see this time of year. We get it from Scripture as well. We've already saw the prophecy from Isaiah some 700 years before Christ's birth. You have another prophecy from Luke chapter 1, verses 78 to 79. This is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Right after John the Baptist is born, Zechariah prophesies about Jesus' birth that is to come. And he, write, he says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That's Jesus' birth he's referring to. The sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus, when he was born, was the sunrise that came up into this darkness of our world And with that sunrise, with that light shining into the darkness, Jesus, it says, lights our feet as we go into the way of peace. He guides us. Jesus came to guide us into the way of peace. It's why he came. And then we'll read just the beautiful passage of the Christmas season from Luke chapter 2, highlighting that once Jesus was born, the angels filled the heavens and declared peace on earth. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this Christmas season, let's remember the Prince of Peace who was born to give us peace. And yet it is certainly fair to look around the world and say to yourself, Hmm, I wouldn't describe what I'm seeing in the world around me as peace, right? So just think about it. When I look around the world, I see that there are just people disagreeing with each other. It seems like more than ever before. It seems like the list of things that human beings agree on is getting shorter and not longer. It seems like peace is evading us more and more. There's financial distress among us. There's political unrest. There is family turmoil. If you watch the news, there were shootings in Pittsburgh this week. There's a war in Ukraine, and we could go on like this and fill an hour, couldn't we? So then you say, well, where is the peace on earth? And is the Prince of Peace ruling? Because when I hear the words Prince of Peace, I hear, I hear words that remind me that there's someone who has power, there's someone who reigns and has authority. So why, where is the peace on earth? Earlier I referenced the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. So if you've never heard the story behind the song, let me tell you the story behind the song of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was written by the great American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry lived in the time of the Civil War. His wife actually tragically died in, a, in an accident where her dress caught on fire. And Henry, uh, trying to save his wife's life, um, jumped into action, suffered extreme burns, so much so that he wasn't even able to attend his wife's funeral because he himself was getting care. So that left him a widower to raise six children. So his once she had passed, his, eight, his son turned 18 years old and ran off to join the army and fight in the Civil War. It was on December 1st, in the midst of the Civil War, that Henry gets a message that his son has been severely wounded in the war. So he gets on a train and travels to Washington, D.C. to be near his son. And on Friday, December 25th, 1863, Longfellow, a 57-year-old widower of six children, one is which has already passed, the oldest of which has been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, he sits down and writes a poem, seeking to capture the conflict in his heart and in the world as he observes around him this Christmas day, his divided nation, at war with itself, his wounded son, and he hears the bells ringing on Christmas day and singing of peace on earth, but he observes the world around him of injustice and violence And it seems to mock the song of peace on earth. And so he writes these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along that unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth The cannon thundered in the south, and with that sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, 
goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. His poem was set to music and has become a standard that we can hear at Christmas time, but you can, I hope, hear the confidence in Longfellow's words and his hope. In the midst of despair, he reminds himself that God is alive, he is not dead, and there will come a day which there will be peace on earth. He is the Prince of Peace. He is currently allowing humanity to exercise their free will and rebel against his kingdom. But there is coming a day where wrong shall fail and right prevail and there will be peace on earth. As we live in the reality, though, of this world, we have with us a promise of peace. It comes from Jesus, our Savior. He's born in Bethlehem that night 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life up until he, and he's headed to the cross. He's gathered his disciples around him, and he begins to speak to his disciples and give them a promise of peace. It's found in John 16, And Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus promises us peace. He's about to go to the cross, which seems like the opposite of peace. He's in this context, already told his disciples, listen, things are about to change, all right? I'm going to go die on a cross, and you're about to get ripped from your homes, persecution is coming, tribulation, suffering, and trouble is on its way for you. And so it's a strange verse to look at as a promise of peace, and yet that is what it is. There's actually two promises embedded into one. You have the promise from Jesus that in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have suffering and tribulation. Promise number one. But the other promise that's embedded inside that promise is in me you may have peace. So Jesus is sort of painting a word picture for us. He says, okay, in the world, and we're all in the world until Jesus comes and takes us out of it to go to heaven. So we're all in the world, so we're all going to have tribulation. That's the promise of God. But think of a smaller circle inside of the bigger circle of the world, and that is in Christ. So as you are in Christ, in the world, you can have peace in the midst of your tribulation and suffering and pain. That's the promise of peace that Jesus gives us. If we are in Christ, then we will and we can have peace. It says that he is speaking these words to them so that they will have peace. And so when we don't experience peace in our lives, one thing that we can do is try to remember the words of Jesus because the words of Jesus, he said, are where we find peace in his promise. Now the apostles, they latch on to this language of being in Christ. And so then you have the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So we ask ourselves this morning, am I in Christ? Have I been made new? Am I in Christ? And hopefully you can answer that question in your own heart. I mean, when we talk about it at Northgate, oftentimes what you've heard me say, and you'll hear me say it many times more, 
if you're not sure if you're in Christ, it can be as simple as ABC. A, admit, B, believe, and C, choose. So you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Then you need to believe that Jesus died on that cross to pay the penalty for your sin, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And then choose. You need to choose. You need to commit yourself to his way and choose to follow him. And all those things sort of merge together into this salvation that we all have been extended to us. It's as simple as ABC to be in Christ. And once you're in Christ, then you can claim these promises that are throughout Scripture. And here's one of them. Philippians chapter 4. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the promise of God for a peace that passes all understanding is for those of us who are in Christ. So I hope this morning with confidence you can say, I am in Christ And I want to claim this promise of peace that Jesus gives me. Now, it's hard to understand how that works, but one way that helps us understand how it works is if we look at the gift of peace. So, when we do come into Christ, what happens simultaneously with our faith is this gift of peace. And again, as Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, he says these words to them in John chapter 14. The helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Holy Spirit is the gift of peace. The Holy Spirit is our helper. You say, well, how does the Holy Spirit help me? Well, we could have a whole sermon series on that, but this text is telling us here's one way he helps you. He reminds you of Jesus' words. That's a whole other sermon for another day. The gift of peace that the Holy Spirit gives you, is one thing it does is reminds you of Jesus' words, but it also gives you peace. Not like the world gives peace. So the world gives us peace. So you say, I'm going to leave my faith behind, and I'm going to go out into the world and seek peace not connecting it to my faith or Jesus or anything. Just so out of the world, how can I have peace? And the world has some really good options for you. That's not sarcasm. That's legitimate, honest truth. The world has good options for you. You, It it has earplugs. That's peace. That can give you peace. That's the gift of peace that the world can give you. The world can give you peace through medication. The world can give you peace through conflict resolution training at your workplace. Oftentimes, we can get peace even from our wealth. We can get peace from meditation. We can get peace from exercise and a healthy lifestyle. These are all ways that we can achieve peace out in the world. Jesus is just making a distinction. He's saying, listen, I am going to give you a gift of peace, and it's nothing like you can experience in the world, because here's the gift. It's me. It's me. It's it's the Prince of Peace. I'm going to give you my spirit, and my spirit will fill you and abide in you and be with you. And you're not going to find a gift like that anywhere in the world because when I give the gift of peace, I don't give it like anyone else gives it. I will come and live inside of you. That's the gift of peace that is extended to us from Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself. And it's a free gift, a free gift. It's not purchased from righteous living. It's not earned through big donations. It's a free gift. 
Christmas season, and so let's just use our uh, imaginations that God has given us to try and, and help us see this free gift. So in your imagination, let's imagine Christmas morning, you're in your living room, there's the tree, you're on the couch, and next to you sits Jesus. And Jesus wants to give the first gift of the morning, so he reaches underneath the tree, pulls out a gift, hands it to you, and says, here is your gift. And you say, oh, Jesus, what is it? And he says, I'll tell you what it is. Inside that box is salvation. Oh, it's full of treasures. You're going to have the forgiveness of sins. You're going to have heaven one day, and you're going to have the gift of my Holy Spirit. It's a free gift. Merry Christmas. Here's your free gift. And you look at Jesus, and you're like, hold on a second. What's the catch? I'm not sure I believe that something so great could be free. Jesus says, okay. Others have said the same thing. There's a whole lot of people that don't believe what I just told you. And so since they don't believe my words, they don't open the gift because they just don't believe that my words are true and that's what's in the box. So they don't open it. Others reject the gift because they were listening closely and I said what's in the box is the forgiveness of sins. And in their pride, they say, no, no, I don't need forgiveness because I don't believe in your moral code. Therefore, if I don't believe in your moral code, then I haven't broken anything. I don't believe, I'm not defining sin as you define sin, and so therefore I don't need your forgiveness because I have not sinned. He says there's all kinds of reasons people reject the gift, but do you admit that you're in need of forgiveness? You say, okay, I admit it. I'm no saint. I'll take the gift. But there's nothing in life that's free. Nothing in life is free. So there's got to be a catch. I think Jesus smiles back at you and he says, it's a free gift, but let me explain to you what's in the box. It's eternity with me, with me. So some people don't open it and don't receive it because they don't like me. They don't like the sound of my voice. They don't like the places that I lead them. They don't like to spend time with me. And so they reject it because they don't want eternity with me. Others hear, oh, your spirit's in there. Well, I'm perfectly comfortable with my own spirit because I go where I want to go. I do what I want to do. I feel like I'm doing just fine with my spirit. Why would I want to yield my spirit to your spirit? My spirit's doing just fine. So some people reject the gift and push it away because they say, I don't need your spirit happy with mine. So Jesus says, it's not, there's no trick here. This is a free gift. But understand what it is. It's my spirit coming to live in you. And it is being with me for eternity. So do you love me? Do you want to spend eternity with me? Do you want to yield your spirit to my spirit? If you want to, then open the gift and receive the free gift of salvation. And so we ask ourselves, what do we say to that? Do we receive it? Do we exercise our faith and trust and yield our spirit to the, op- to the offer of the free gift of his spirit? But even with all these things at play, we have the prince of peace. We have the promise of peace. And then we have his Holy Spirit With all those things, we're trusting in Jesus' promise. We're yielding to the Holy Spirit. Even still, it is hard to have peace in this world. 
I think we should be vulnerable enough to just share that out loud. You look around the room and you're like, there, everyone in here is probably more holy and righteous and religious than me because I don't feel at peace in my life. I know what anxiety feels like. I know what it feels like to be depressed. I know what loneliness feels like. And so I must not be in Christ. I must not have the Holy Spirit. I must not be yielding. So let's just pause and admit all of us together that it is hard to have peace in this world, in Christ with the Holy Spirit. We have moments of peace but it's hard to sustain it, we can all agree. And that's because we are still in this world. It's because you can have peace and then you walk into children's hospital and you're like, oh wow, my peace has just been wrecked. Or you turn on the five o'clock news and you see like, wow, suffering and evil is like a virus that's spreading and it's oppressive And it can be hard to understand how the Prince of Peace can be reigning in a world like ours. And then you hear the words of Longfellow and and you hear his words, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall prevail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that statement is true because it is written in the future tense. We're never going to have peace on earth until Jesus comes and he brings peace on earth. That's what the lyrics are in all the songs that we're singing. Our hearts are longing for a vision of peace, for a time that is yet to come. When Longfellow writes, hangs his head and says, there is no peace on earth, that lyric is actually pretty true because our hearts yearn for a vision of peace, a day that will come when there will be peace on earth. When we look around our world and we're like, I feel pretty good. I'm comfortable. I'm at peace. Everything in my life is in order. Then we begin to think, why do I need Jesus to return and mess up this perfect world that I've created around myself? We need a vision of peace. So, and the vision of peace that we want to look at this morning is Isaiah 35. And so we'll put that on the screens for you. It's a long passage. Let me read it for you. Isaiah wrote this, like I said, hundreds of years before Jesus is born. But it's a vision of peace even beyond Jesus' birth. It's a vision of peace that we will all experience once Jesus returns and restores all things. Brings this deep sense of restoration of biblical peace. And so this is the words of the prophet Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon They shall say to the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. 
And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah's vision of peace ought to be our vision of peace as well. Isaiah wrote those words hundreds of years ago to the exiled people living in Babylon. He said, I know you want to come back to the promised land, and you will, and one day it'll just be bursting and singing with joy, but not now. For now we press on in exile, in suffering, in trouble, in tribulation. As you live as exiles, hearts yearning to be restored to your home. And the New Testament says that's the kind of description for you. For you, New Testament Christian, we are supposed to think of ourselves as living in exile. Once we trust in Jesus, we transition our citizenship from the kingdom of darkness, and now we are a citizen of the kingdom of light. But we must still live here in the kingdom of darkness, and we must pursue uh, the best for our city. We've talked about that in weeks prior. But we must have hearts that long and yearn for the restoration of our homeland so that we might return and be at home in the kingdom of light. Advent is a season of building anticipation. Certainly we anticipate Jesus' uh, birth and remembering this Christmas morning that's upcoming. But Advent is a season of anticipation for the return of Christ, for the restoration of all things. And the more you can identify as an exile then the more you will be able to appreciate and long for Jesus' return. The more you can be aware of and, and see just the brokenness and the suffering that is around you, then the more you will long for Jesus to come and fix what is broken. But the more at home you feel in this kingdom of darkness, if you don't really feel like an exile, if you're pretty comfortable and fine to just hang out here for as long as you can, it might just be that you're not appreciating and looking forward to Jesus' return. I've already talked about the Civil War with Longfellow, so let's highlight the other evil of the Civil War, right? Slavery. Think about the, the, the spirituals that came out of slavery, right? All fly away. So you took these people and you ripped them from their homeland in Africa and you brought them to America to live as slaves. And they just went deep into the Christian faith. And they said, you know what we are? We're exiles. And they wrote these beautiful spirituals that we still sing today about, oh, their hope for a land across the Jordan, a promised land that they one day will be at, where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and they will be at peace. Why could they write those songs? Because they did not feel at home in the midst of the slavery that they were trapped in. And so we sing them so that we will tap into that same feeling of being like, this world is not my home either. As comfortable as I am, as much leisure as I have at my fingertips, God, help me see that this is not my home. Help me to long for Jesus' return. Some of us need to hear that. Other of us are like, stop preaching it. I already live it every day. Every day I live with pain. Every day I live with suffering. So for those of us in the crowd, then you already know what it means to feel this longing for Jesus' restoration. One of the driest places on earth is the Atacama Desert in South America. We have a picture of it for you. The, one of the, so the, it's the driest place on earth other than like the polar ice caps. Um, but in a regular part of the earth, this is the driest place on earth. As far as rainfall goes, it averages five millimeters a year. So it's like the exact opposite of living in Pittsburgh. 
right there. Um, so I think it can be sometimes a, a picture of our lives. We can be in Christ. We can have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And still, we can feel like this picture. It's okay to admit that because this world is deeply broken. But what God does in his just beautiful sovereignty and his mercy and grace as the great creator, he embeds into his creation just little foretastes, little glimpses of the kingdom that is to come. And so what happens is when those five millimeters of rain come to the Atacama Desert, they bloom and they sing for joy. And so God gives us just a little sneak peek of the fact that what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 35 is true. And one day the whole earth will be this way and the desert will rejoice and blossom and it will rejoice with joy and singing. One day... This is what the whole world will be. It will be rejoicing and singing to our God, our creator, our savior, as he has restored all things. And in the meantime, we press on and we take these moments and we let them renew our spirit and encourage us. And we trust in the promise of peace and we yield our hearts to the spirit of peace that lives within us and we keep our eyes fixed on this vision of peace that one day peace will come. Our savior will return. I'm going to invite uh, uh, Elizabeth and Dawn to join me up here. We're going to sing a song that I think captures this. Uh, it's a beautiful hymn uh, it's reminding us of peace. I want to read the lyric for you before you sing it. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. But I want to read the second verse because I just love it so much. The, the hymn writer sits down to write the next verse and he writes, my sin. And then he stops. He says, I can't even get through this. I can't even write the line. He says, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Listen, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is the promise of peace. He is saying, I trust that my sin is nailed to the cross and I have peace because of the promise of God. And then the hymn writer goes into his vision of peace. He says, here's the vision of peace that I have. The Lord haste the day when my faith will be sight. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trump will resound. The Lord will descend. So.